You are now listening to the September 2nd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Screw Tape Letters, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with the Screw Tape Letters. everyone, I am Terry, the host of The Screw Tape Letters. We have been discussing faith focusing on the book The Screw Tape Letters written by C.S. Lewis, often regarded as one of the greatest apologists of the 20th century. This book is structured in the form of letters written by a seasoned devil named Screwtape to his nephew, a novice devil named Wormwood. Screwtape provides various insights to his nephew on how to effectively ensnare humans as their prey. It's important to note that since the speaker in the book is a devil, he refers to humans as patients and calls Christ their enemy. Last time, we discussed Screwtape's tactics regarding the introduction of new friends with vanity, pride, and cynical characteristics and how they can be used to make the patient more like these new friends. Today, I will introduce the 11th and 12th letters, which can be seen as an extension about how devils may use friends to cause a believer to stray from faithfulness toward God. The patient has acquired other new friends. They are in some sense similar to the wealthy, intelligent, middle-aged couple the patient had begun befriending. You may recall this couple was immersed in their own sense of superiority and privilege. To borrow Screwtape's expression, the new friends are unwavering and consistent cynics and worldly individuals. A cynic refers to someone that disregards or undermines the custom, tradition, morals, laws, and institution established by society. And a worldly person lacks culture, has narrow-mindedness, and is focused on material gain or appearance. These new friends of the patient tend to laugh a lot. They laugh off a lot of things and seem carefree with no worries. Laughing, according to Screwtape, may not be a good thing for the devils that promote pain and suffering. However, Screwtape points out that not all laughing is the same. He classifies laughing into four categories, joy, amusement, jokes, and frivolity. He mentions that joy and amusement from the devil's perspective are trivial and even dangerous, and for the devils, the only useful forms are jokes and frivolity. Jokes, although inherently useless from the devil's side, can become a fairly good tool when twisted and used to provide superficial comfort and excuses even in bitter life situations. In essence, instead of enduring and contemplating moments of suffering, Screwtape advises to turn them into something lighthearted and not very serious. If this becomes a habit, it eventually leads to a superficial life and causes one to overlook the true meaning of life. What about you? Do you often make jokes? Were any of them inappropriate? For example, have you tried to cover up your mistakes with funny gestures or expressions? After making a mistake, did you apologize sincerely and take responsibility? Or did you try to justify it by saying it was unavoidable? I often find myself in situations where I try to use humor to diffuse the impact of my forgetfulness. For instance, when my forgetfulness leads to mistake, I try to make light of it by saying, it's because of my lousy memory. In a sense, I am subtly conveying the message that I couldn't help it or it was beyond my control. 
People often use humor to say things they have been keeping inside or to point out aspects of others they don't like or bring up past mistakes. Screwtape considers the act of covering up one's own mistake, shame, cowardice, or cruelty with humor a form of temptation. Rather than taking one's faults seriously, trying to brush them off with laughter is not a good thing. Screwtape also discusses frivolity. Frivolous individuals lack caution and enjoy discussing things, even serious topics, in a humorous manner. They always turn to something serious into something lighthearted and funny. If this frivolity becomes a habit, it can be the most effective way to distance patients from Jesus. Here is one example from my personal experience. I was sharing with other believers about my mother's prayer habits. We were talking about how she always asked God what gifts to bring whenever she visits someone's house and how God always provides just what the family needs, even if it's a small thing, like a dozen eggs or a carton of milk. Then, before I could finish my sentence, someone at the gathering laughed and said she was spot on, like a fortune teller. This person must have thought he made a funny joke, but I could feel that the flow of the testimony was disrupted. As a matter of fact, I wanted to share God's attentiveness and compassion, considering my mother's modest financial situation and the needs of the home she visited. However, I was interrupted and failed to convey that message. Looking back now, I think what this person did could be what Screwtape calls frivolity. In actual gathering of believers, there are individuals who excel at making witty remarks and jokes. They always manage to make other believers laugh, and then they try to make more witty remarks from seeing people laugh. However, we should carefully consider whether such jokes are actually helping believers focus on God in their interactions. We also need to examine ourselves whether we might also be guilty of making such frivolous jokes. Making careless jokes can be distracting not only to oneself, but also to those around us. In the following 12th letter, Screwtape discloses that due to their intervention, the patient is already off the course, moving away from Jesus. Further, Screwtape is rather pleased that the patient still attends church gatherings and participates in communion. This is because it creates a barrier that prevents the patient from realizing that their current faith is vastly different from the pure and fervent faith the patient experienced earlier. This barrier helps maintain the misconception that I am simply making new friends and finding new sources of enjoyment, and I am still faithfully living my spiritual life. In essence, the core of this tactic is to prevent the patient from realizing their true position of weakened faith, and therefore avoiding the path of repentance. Screwtape advises exploiting any discomfort the patient may feel, such as a sense of wrongdoing. This discomfort may gradually discourage the patient from thinking about Christ. The goal is to encourage the patient to follow in the footsteps of Adam and Eve, who ate the forbidden fruit, covered themselves, and hid behind the trees in the garden, away from God's presence. Once the patient falls into this state, they would gradually become more averse to religious obligations in the church, such as worship, praise, discussion, studying the scripture, fellowship with other believers, missions, and charity. If this condition becomes entrenched, the patient would likely become unhappy and uncomfortable. He would then come to dislike his being unhappy and uncomfortable. In other words, if the patient feels uncomfortable and dislike feeling uncomfortable 
due to a guilty conscience, he would eventually drift away from Jesus because he would want to reduce his unhappiness and discomfort and stop thinking about Jesus or looking for him. Let us take a moment to examine what new encounters we might have in our lives. Did they change in values or priorities through new sources of entertainment and cause alterations in our lives? We need to assess whether these changes bring us closer to God or burden our conscience. If there is even the slightest possibility that these changes may cause us to be pulled away from God's presence, we must be bold and cut them off. Of course, we cannot do this on our own. We must approach God just as we are. When we clearly and completely acknowledge our sins and repent without hiding, the Lord will bring us back onto His path of restoration. The Christians describe the enemy as one without whom nothing is strong, and nothing is very strong, strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dream flickering of the mind over it knows not what and knows not why, in the gratification of curiosity so feeble that the man is only half aware of them, in the drumming of fingers and kicking of heels, in whistling tunes that he does not like, or in the long, dim labyrinth of reveries that have not even lust or ambition to give them a relish, but which, once chance association has started them, the creature is too weak and fuddled to shake off. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember... The only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are provided, that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cars if cars can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. This passage, especially the last few sentences, reminds me of the frog in the pot. Devils are on the prowl. They make us pray, but they try to keep our prayer shallow. They go along with our being diligent in our faith, but they try to manipulate us to forget the essence. These are the cunning tactics of the devil. Their goal is to lead us down the wrong path while making us think we're on the right one. We must be on guard and remain vigilant in every aspect of our daily lives. This concludes our program today. We'll return next time with additional letters from Screwtape.
Christ he lives, Christ he lives, and what we want will heaven bring, everlasting life with him, and we will rise to meet the Lord, then sin and death will be destroyed, and we will Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Milter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is freedom from guilt. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. After this service last week, Calvin came up. And if you, if you know Calvin, he's a great guy. And he came up and he, he goes, I want to tell you about something that happened to me. Um, and I said, well, how long ago? You know, we were talking about it. I go, how long ago did this happen? And he goes, well, it was, I think, 30, 35 years ago. And you'll, you'll see why that's important. He told me about a time about 35 years ago that he made a decision to pick up a hitchhiker. Now, in Calvin's defense, and many of you can attest to this, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, it was normal, semi-normal, to hitchhike, right? Right. So let's get to know each other. You ready? How many of you have ever hitchhiked in your life? Wow. Look around. Look how many hands are up. Oh, my goodness. Any of you hitchhiked in the last year? <laughs> okay. But my point, okay. Now, let's take it one step further. How many of you have ever picked up a hitchhiker? Really? Wow, this is impressive. That is awesome. Anybody? I did ask this last hour, and somebody raised their hand. Has anybody picked up a hitchhiker in the last year? No? Okay, good. Well, one lady did in the... I'm like, it's good to have you here in church today. <laughs> You've seen the meme going around, haven't you? A guy picks up a hitchhiker and they're driving and the hitchhiker looks at him and says, how do you know that I'm not a serial killer? And the driver looked at him and he goes, because the odds of us both being serial killers is really low. (laughs) Now, Calvin picks up this hitchhiker. This is how it went down. He picked him up somewhere here in Arizona. The guy gets in the car and he starts talking and he goes, oh my gosh, I just got out of prison. He picked, so Calvin picked up somebody that had just gotten out of prison. And you can imagine Calvin was probably like, what? Makes you think twice before picking up a hitchhiker. Um, but here's the thing. 
Um, the guy starts telling him that about how he had just literally got out of prison and he was hitchhiking from where he was trying to get to somewhere because he had just gotten out of prison. He had no way to get to wherever it is he was going. And Calvin said, hop in or he was driving him and he told him this. And um, what was really interesting is how Calvin handled this. And so the guy's ranting and raving about how great it is to be free, how great it is to be out of prison. And what Calvin turns to him and says is, you might be out of prison, but that doesn't mean you're truly free. Amen. Now, I don't know what's worse, picking up a hitchhiker who says, I just got out of prison or being a hitchhiker and getting in the car and somebody saying, let me tell you about Jesus. Because <laughs> Calvin said that guy's eyes got his really big, you know, and like, well, wait, a you know, who's more scared? I found that really interesting. But the point is Calvin nailed it. And this was the point that I brought up last week, folks, of all the ways to be imprisoned or enslaved or in bondage, the worst type of slavery is spiritual slavery. It's a slavery that we have and when we are enslaved to our sin. But here's the problem. Most people don't see slavery to sin as a problem at all. They just don't. This guy got in the car and he's ranting and raving about to Calvin about how he's free. And Calvin has to tell him, you're not as free as you think. You're not as free as you think. And he was introducing him to this idea that there's something, you're still enslaved in, in, in the worst type of way imaginable, and you don't even know it. And here's the kicker on top of that. Even if people did see themselves as enslaved to sin, most people still wouldn't see it as their most pressing need. They still wouldn't see it as their most pressing need. And I want to take you to a passage today that illustrates this point very, very powerfully. We will be in Luke chapter 5. We will be looking at verses 17 through 26. Church, it's my honor to present to you the word of God today. On one of those days, as he, Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was uh, with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he had saw their faith, Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, who is this that speaks these blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things. So here is a man who has a very great physical need. And you know if you even have a slight physical need, if you have a little bit of a cough, even something as simple as a hangnail, it'll drive you crazy until it's fixed, right? Well, imagine being paralyzed and having yourself in this situation. This surely dominated this man's thinking daily. How could it not? He's paralyzed. So pressing was this issue. 
that this paralytic man was going to get himself in front of Jesus by any and all means possible, even if it means ripping apart a roof and getting lower down in the midst of Jesus so that he could get himself in front of Jesus and get healed. He must have heard about Jesus and he had faith that Jesus could do to heal him. And so he was going to spare no expense to get there. He wanted to be free. He wanted freedom. This is how bad people want freedom. He wanted freedom from his paralysis and who can blame him? Who can blame him? And yet here's the irony. No sooner is he lowered down through the roof then Jesus does what no one saw coming. Jesus forgives him of his sins. Now, that's certainly nice. Thank you, Jesus. I appreciate you forgiving my sins, but let's be honest. That's not why I came here today. I'm paralyzed, Jesus. I ripped apart this roof. I had these guys rip apart this roof. It's going to cost money to fix that. And I'm here. I want to be healed. I want to be set free from this prison in which I live daily, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Above all else, this man wanted to walk again. And yet this is precisely why this is such a significant event in the scriptures and in the life of Jesus and his ministry. For in it, we get a powerful glimpse at how immense our need is to be freed. And here's the key from the penalty of our sins. Folks, there is literally no need that you and I will ever have in this lifetime that will ever come close to our need to be forgiven of our sins. Think about that. If you were paralyzed today, if you had no sight, you had no hearing, that would pale in comparison to the need that you truly have. And that is your need to have your debt canceled by the Lord Jesus. Our sin problem, it's our greatest problem. And you just take one look at our culture today and you, you'll see just how devastating sin can be. Listen, listen to this. This is so important. If the paralytic who was lowered down through the roof to be healed by Jesus had even the slightest understanding and appreciation of how great his need was to be forgiven, he wouldn't have just asked for a hole to be made in the roof. He would have asked for the entire roof to be ripped off and the walls torn down to get to Jesus. Amen? That's what he would have done. You think it's significant that he tore a hole in the roof to get lowered down to Jesus because he was paralyzed? If he knew, even for uh, could appreciate on the front end what it meant to get before Jesus, to be forgiven by Jesus, he would have ripped the roof off, tore the walls down, and spared no expense, done anything and everything to get to Jesus to be forgiven. And yet here's the irony. You want to know what's so funny about this passage? I kid you not what I'm about to say. Even after studying this passage and preparing this sermon, do you know what my first thought is after reading it? Here's my first thought. It's so amazing that Jesus healed this man of his paralysis. (laughs) That's my first thought. Not that he was forgiven, I'm not marveling that he was forgiven. I'm marveling that he could walk home. And rightly so. It's amazing that he was able to walk home. What did the last line in the passage that we looked at? It said, the people said, we have seen amazing things today. And what was amazing wasn't that this man walked home. What was amazing is that his sins were forgiven. And yet we read this story. And if you do what I do, you, you read it and you go, yeah, that's great that he was forgiven. But he got to walk home. Folks, listen to me very carefully. That, that is how easy it is to let what is temporal become more pressing to us than what is eternal. That is how easy it is. That I could read a story like this, a true event that happened, and be more focused on the healing he got than the forgiveness he received. But here's the point in all of this. One of the primary ways in which God's children will experience freedom from their sin is freedom from the penalty of sin. There are three primary ways in which believers are set free from their sin. 
This is the first. We're freed from the penalty of our sin. We're also being freed from the power of sin. Okay, so we are freed from the penalty of sin, but we are being freed from the power of sin. That's called sanctification. We're growing in holiness. And there's going to come a day when God calls us home or he comes back where we are going to once and for all be delivered from the presence of sin. Amen? There's going to be no sin. I don't care if the roads are made out of gold and there's trees bearing fruit in season. That's secondary to the fact that there's no sin. And folks, you and I can't even fathom what it's like to live in a world with no sin. You think this world is great? This world is cursed. It's cursed by God. The ground has been cursed and sin abounds. And yet we rejoice at how beautiful this world is, how great life is. Imagine, you can only imagine. I can only imagine, (laughs) right? You know the song? I can only imagine. Today, I want to focus a little bit on being freed from the penalty of sin because it's significant not only to you, but how God is going to use you in the years to come. So Proverbs 32, 1 and 2 says this, Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity. You know who wrote this? David, King David. So significant are these words right here, Psalm 32, that the Apostle Paul himself can't help or can't resist but quoting them in the New Testament. Paul says this in Romans chapter 4, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Folks, there is no one truly more blessed on the face of the planet than the person whose sins are forgiven. People go, well, I'm blessed by living in the United States. You certainly are. But if you're not freed from uh, your penalty of sin, you're still enslaved in sin in the worst type of way possible. More free is the person living under, in a communist country in prison for what they believe. More free is that person than the person living in this country who doesn't know Jesus. And that is precisely because we who believe have been forgiven of a debt that we couldn't pay back in a thousand lifetimes. I think we'd all agree that freedom is perhaps one of the greatest blessings we could ever have. We all count ourselves blessed to live in this country, don't you? You do. As a matter of fact, I can prove it to you. If you've ever visited a foreign country where there isn't the freedom that we have here, we just got back from Israel. Uh, We took 100 people to Israel. And Israel is a free country. It's It's a democratic free country. But it is surrounded by countries. I mean, literally surrounded by countries where the freedoms that we know and the freedoms that you have in that little country don't exist. You're literally steps away. It makes you, you know what it makes you want to do? When the plane lands here in the United States, back in the United States and the, and you get off, what's the first thing you think about doing? I just want to kiss the ground. Thank you, Lord. Many of you, some of you, you fought in wars and you know what it's like to be in the Middle East or in Vietnam and other places. And you know, you get a taste of that and you come back here and it's like, Lord, thank you for this country. Listen, folks, if you would kiss the ground upon returning to this country because of the freedoms it offers you, how much more should you kiss the feet of the Savior for the forgiveness of sins that he offers you and me? Amen. By the way, there's a story in the Bible, Luke chapter 7, about somebody kissing the feet of Jesus. Can you remember it? A woman, a sinful woman, comes to Jesus in the midst of all of these self-righteous men. And what does she do? She falls to the feet of Jesus, and she anoints them, and she cries over them, and she, she uses her hair to wipe his feet, and she kisses his feet. 
Why does somebody do that? Because they got a taste of freedom. They got a taste of freedom. And that woman in Luke chapter 7 got a taste of freedom. And she was kissing the feet of the Savior. You see, when Jesus hung on the cross, you know this, or maybe you don't, he bore the full weight of God's wrath. You do, you do understand you're saved from God by God. You're saved from God, God's wrath by God, who bore that wrath on your behalf upon the cross. And that's why when Jesus was on the cross, he spoke these words, famous words. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, and everybody say it with me, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The Greek word right there, tetelestai. It was written in ancient times on documents to say, you would, if you saw the word tetelestai, it meant the debt has been paid. It's been paid. Tetelestai. So that the first century people hearing Jesus mention this word would have immediately recognized that it's used when a debt has been paid. Jesus says it is finished. The debt has been paid. You no longer have to live like someone who has to pay a debt because you don't. Your debt, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, has been paid in full. And I will tell you right now, show me a person that knows their sins are forgiven, and I will show you some of the, I will show you one of the freest people on the face of the planet. Luke chapter 7, the woman who was anointing Jesus' feet and kissing his feet, she was the freest person in that room. The self-righteous people that were watching her had no clue the freedom that she was tasting in that moment. The other example I always love to use of somebody that has been set free and knows it happens here in Luke 19 with a man by the name of Zacchaeus. Now, I need to mention real quick, if you're following along in the sermon notes, it says Nicodemus. That's wrong. But I want you to know that's forgiven. I make mistakes, and I know that that's been taken care of. <laughs> Hear the word of God. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he turned and came down and received him and say that word with me, joyfully. He received him joyfully. And when he saw it, and when they saw it, that that is the self-righteous people, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Something happened. Zacchaeus understood that when Jesus said, I'm going into your home, he was saying more than I'm just coming to eat with you. He was saying, I am receiving you. I'm receiving you. Zacchaeus, somebody who has maybe done a lot of wrong in your life. I want to eat with you. I want to break bread with you. I receive you. I accept you. And Zacchaeus understood this. He understood that in this moment that the Jesus was receiving him and accepting him and forgiving him. 
And so what Zacchaeus does in this passage, he doesn't do, he doesn't give to the poor or give back to those he defrauded to earn his salvation. He does it because of the joy of his salvation, the joy of his salvation. His debt had been generously canceled and now he could be generous himself. And here's the key folks. If you get nothing, get this free people are transformed people. At least they should be. At least they should be. If you're a Christian here, do you understand that the greatest need you have has been fully taken care of? And because of it, you're going to be in paradise for all eternity? Think about that. Nothing in this life compares to what you and I have received in Christ. Free people are transformed people. At least they should be. Now notice how Zacchaeus was transformed. Immediately, it was as if the things of this world don't matter anymore. He went from hoarding wealth to giving it away. I don't care. Take it. Because I realize there's something better. Zacchaeus understood this world was no longer his home. He had a home in heaven because of his faith in Christ. He was forgiven. And that's where his treasure now was in heaven. There's a million different ways that free people are transformed people. But I want to I hone in on one thing today. And it's going to have a bearing on you and also on the way that you live, specifically in the culture that we're living in today. And that is this, one of the key ways that transformed people, that free people are transformed people, is that free people have been freed from a guilty conscience. Take King David. He wrote Psalm 32, blessed is this man whose sins are forgiven. Let me ask you a question. How does a man who committed murder and adultery ever move on in life? How do you move on from something like that? How do you not be racked with guilt? I killed somebody. And I, I, it's not that he killed somebody, he murdered them. And he committed adultery. How do you ever move on from that? Or take the Apostle Paul who quoted David, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. How in the world does Paul, who murdered Christians, ever move on from a guilty conscience? How do you ever even put that behind you? Is it, how, how do you do it? Is it even possible? The answer is both of these men knew that by God's grace, they were set free from a guilty conscience. David, in that sense, he looked forward to the cross. He knew that God was going to send a Messiah one day. And Paul looked back on the cross, knowing that Jesus died, even though he opposed it at the time. Isn't it ironic that the two men who talk about being blessed, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, are two men that created some of, did some of the most heinous things in all the Bible. Isn't it ironic? And here's why this is so incredibly important. It is my guess that there are some of you, if not a lot of you here today, who are living with guilt over bad decisions you've made in your past. And in that sense, you're living with what you're not supposed to be living with. And that is false guilt. That is false guilt. And I know the destructive power of false guilt because I lived with it. I've lived with it. When I first got saved, I told you this story. I knew the joy of the Lord. But as I about two or three years into my Christian walk, I began, I'm like, this can't be this true. This can't be this good. And I started obsessing about things in my past and I couldn't let it go. And it was miserable. It was miserable. If you're here today and that describes you, the good news is God wants you to be free. Now there's two types of false guilt. The first type of false guilt is the guilt that we feel over bad decisions that other people have made. And that happens all the time. It could be decisions that your parents made or a spouse made. Maybe it was a bad decision. A lot of you in here have raised kids and you're going, well, my kids didn't make great decisions growing up. Some of them made some really bad decisions and you feel like that's my fault. When in fact, no, it's their fault. You make the decision, who's it on? It's on you. 
The other type of false guilt is when we feel guilt over bad decisions that we have made, but nevertheless are fully forgiven in Christ. And it's this type of false guilt that I think many Christians are unnecessarily living with. And more often than not, it usually is centered around one event or one season of your life where in a moment of weakness, you made some bad decisions. We've all been there. We have seasons of our life where we were just weak. We were making bad decisions and we made some decisions. It's like, oh my goodness. I Looking back, you go, how could I let myself do that? Folks, if that describes you, guess what? We are all in the same boat. We all have skeletons in the closet. We all have things that we did in a moment of weakness in our past that we regret. And while we experience freedom from all our other sins, there is that one sin or that one episode that constantly weighs on us. As a result, we hear that little voice in our head saying, you're not forgiven of that. There's no way. And as a result, we live with a crippling false guilt that Jesus has taken care of. If I am describing you today, know this. God wants you to go from false guilt to freedom and not just any type of freedom. He wants you to be free. Whatever that is in your past has been fully taken care of. Amen. And I know you're going, that's too good to be true. That's why we call it the gospel. That's why it's good news. When I was a young man and I got saved, I marveled in my salvation. But as I began to grow a little bit and I began to think of what God has actually forgiven me of, I'm like, there's no way he could have forgiven me all that. It can't be that true. It can't be that good. But it is. It is. And free people are to be transformed people. Free people, when you know that you're forgiven, you're transformed like Nicodemus. You, you're generous. You're just like, I'm not, this world's not my home. I'm not living for the things of this world. I'm living for you, Lord. You're like the woman at the feet of Jesus kissing his feet. You're transformed. If you're here today and you've been struggling with false guilt over something you did in your past, today is the day that God wants you to walk in freedom. Amen? Amen. Amen. It is yours. It was purchased by his blood. It's a gift to you. He wants you to walk in it. It is God's will that the church be the freest people on the face of the planet. Now, you want to know why that's important? Here's why it's important. We are living in a culture, if you turn on the news, where people are making horrible decisions. We're watching people delve into realms of sin and depravity like no other generation or no other culture. You know, we haven't seen this. It's bad. But you want to know why that's good? Because in the years to come, in the months and years to come, you are going to see people who regret the decisions they're making today. They're going to regret. They're going to look back just like you and I have done, and they're going to look back on the decisions they're making today, and they're going to go, how in the world did I let myself do that? I'm so ashamed. I'm so burdened by what I did. Who is going to be there for them in that moment? The world? The government? Philosophy teachers? University professors? No. No. Who needs to be there for them are the freest people on the face of the planet going, hey, I know the guilt you feel. I know you regret those decisions. You want to be free from them. I have the answer to that. That's why I'm saying, guys, the church needs to be the freest people. The the world needs to look at the church and go, what is it about you people? You're free. You sleep at night. You know? Well, how do you sleep at night? How do you let yourself sleep at night knowing the things that you've done in your past? Here's why it's been taken care of. It's that good. The news is that good. Folks, I'm telling you, as bad as it is right now, there's going to come a time shortly, and it's already beginning to happen. 
I'm going to mention this next week, but it's already beginning to happen where we see people leaving lifestyles. They're, they're leaving in droves now. The decisions that people have been in, it's our, we're already seeing the fruit of going, that's bad, I regret it. Who's going to be there for those people? It's got to be free people who go, let me tell you about a freedom that can be yours. You regret what you did? Praise God for that. But here's the good news. That has been taken care of by Christ. If you believe, if you'll look to him, today is the day that God wants us to be free, purchased by the blood of Christ. You know what living with false guilt is like, by the way? It's like trying to tunnel your way back into a prison where there are no bars, guards, or gates. It is. When you were enslaved to sin, you were in a place where there was bars, guards, and gates. But when Jesus died, he released the guards, removed the gates, and removed the bars. And sets you free. But many of us were free and we're like, it's too good to be true. I'm going to tunnel my way back into prison where there are no bars, guards, or gates. And the only thing keeping you there is you. God doesn't want you there. No one else wants you there. But you're there holding on to something you don't need to be holding on to. Walk out of that prison today. It's yours. Walk out of that prison today. When we are constantly held in bondage to bad decisions we've made in our past, We are almost, and I mean this, we are almost always rendered absolutely ineffective in the present. When I went through that season of my life where I'm like, this is too good to be true. I got to go back and fix things. I wasn't, I was anything but productive. You know what I was? I was absolutely miserable. It wasn't a productive time. It was a miserable time in my life. I remember even calling my mom and I go, mom, if this is what it means to be a Christian, I don't want to be a Christian. Even though I was a Christian and I loved Jesus. And it's all because I didn't understand the freedom that was mine and I wasn't walking in it. To put it differently, if we're always looking in the rear view mirror, we're going to miss what God has in store in front of us. Listen to me. This is very important. And I suppose if you get nothing from my message, just get this. There are only a few circumstances where looking in the rear view mirror of your life is actually helpful. Okay. Most of the time, if you're going to go dwell on your past, it's going to be, you're going to end up in bad places thinking about bad things. There are only a few circumstances where looking in the rearview mirror is actually helpful. And one of those times where it is good to look in the rearview mirror is to marvel at how much God has forgiven you and how far he has brought you. Amen? Folks, whenever you look in the rearview mirror, in other words, whenever you dwell upon your past, all you should see is God's forgiveness. You're free from it. Marvel at how far he's brought you and how much he's forgiven you. Other than that, keep your eyes on what is in front of you. We've got enough bad drivers in this world, right? Just go out and drive your car. They're everywhere. But here's what's worse. Christians who are not living as they are called to do because they're constantly looking in the rearview mirror. That is why, by the way, the Apostle Paul, when he talked about his Christian life, what did he do? He always said, press forward, run the race with perseverance. He talked about these things. He, He said, it was like, don't be focused on the past. Be focused on what's in front of you. Let me give you an example of that. Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You see that word weight up there? I didn't highlight it, but let us lay aside every weight. That means any burden, any impediment, anything that's keeping you running with perseverance, now get rid of it. Set it aside and don't be burdened by it. God doesn't want you burdened by it. He wants you running with perseverance. He wants your eyes in front of you, not in the rearview mirror. 
If I were to sum this verse up, you know what, you know how I'd sum it up? Here it is. Keep your eyes on Jesus and run like the wind. Do you know why? Because as you're running, God is going to set people in your path who are going to need what you can offer. And that is freedom from the penalty of sin. People who are going to be racked with guilt right now, turn on the news and you're going to see that the, the people you see on TV in a very short time, many of them are going to go, what did I do? I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed about these decisions. Who's going to be there for them? Here's who's going to be there for them. People who have been forgiven of their past and are living in freedom and proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that even you, no matter what you've done, no matter how many, how many times you've done it, your debt is fully taken care of at the cross if you believe. That's the gospel, folks. That's the good news. That's what we need to do. The church needs to be bold with this message in, in this culture, especially in this culture. I'm telling you, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Why? Because too many of them are looking in the rearview mirror. They've crashed their car. Their eyes weren't in front where it should be. Consider this verse. Therefore, brothers, and I finish with this, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, notice the word confidence. You're to be a confident person, a free and confident person. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his blood. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. You were to be, you were to have full assurance. You were to have confidence. You were to walk free because you are with our hearts. Listen to this sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In the old Testament, the priests were constantly cleaning things with water and sprinkling blood on everything. But here's the thing. All of that was only external. Only the blood of Christ can cleanse you from your past and from a guilty conscience. Listen, if you're here today and you've been struggling, welcome to the club. You're in good company. If there's something in your past, a season in your past that you regret and it weighs on you and it comes back to bite you, you've got skeletons in your closet, don't feel bad at all. We've all got them and all our skeletons are all just about as bad as everyone else's. So there's nothing that, you, that you've done that anyone else hasn't done. If you're a believer Today's the day that God wants you to walk in freedom. If you're here today and you're not a believer, you've never trusted in Christ and you're like, well, what does it mean? I simply say this. If you love all other types of freedom, what makes you think that you would love any less this freedom that God offers you today in Christ? Folks, let's be free and let's be ready because God's going to use the free church in the years to come to change the world.
The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. You know, if we say we have no sin, we're liars. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we should be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, becoming more and more like him. So he's praying, God would count you worthy of your calling, that you would, in a sense, by his power and strength, through his word, by his spirit, live up to that calling. He's praying for that. It's all the work of God. He's saying, in effect, we pray that you would always walk worthily of your calling, thus that God would deem you worthy because, in effect, you're walking worthily. This is God's desire for us. So are you allowing the word to work in your heart, trusting in him so that you would walk in a worthy manner? Are you allowing God's word to work in your heart concerning your home relationships, spouse, parents, children, abiding in Christ so that you will walk in a worthy manner? Are you allowing God's word to work in your heart concerning how you should be serving, loving those in the body of Christ, forbearing, forgiving, so that you will walk in a manner worthy? Are you allowing the word to work in your heart concerning how you should trust and abide in Jesus as his word abiding in you so that you will walk in a worthy manner? This is a work of God, not a work of man. Renew your minds with this truth and allow him to work through you. It's all him. That's what Paul, and that's why he's praying that. Remember, back in the end of 1 Thessalonians, faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. When we just learn that and trust in Jesus, we just learn that and are willing to admit what he says regarding our lives. We're willing to allow his analysis to ring true in our hearts and confess when need be. When we're allowed to trust him and believe what he said, You know, there's so much stuff out there. We can look at this and this and this, or we can trust in Jesus and believe what he has said. So we have the request here. He says that God would count you worthy or deem you worthy of your calling. And then there's a second request, which has two parts to it. Notice what he says here, back in our passage, verse 11. And, this is God as a subject, and that God would fulfill... Every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. Now here, the term fulfill every desire applies to both for goodness and for the work of faith with power. It's quite an amazing prayer. It's quite an encouraging prayer when you think about it. Wow, because we can desire things and we fail. We can be so discouraged. I failed. But God is so good. We still desire the right thing if you've been changed. And his prayer is that God would fulfill it. Notice what he says here. He says, to this end, we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill, first of all, every desire for goodness. That's quite an amazing statement. You see, when we come to faith in Christ, our desires change. We receive a new heart. And indeed, when we renew our minds by the word of God, the spirit changes our hearts. And we will desire the things of him, those things that are good. When we're walking with him, we desire to be like him. When we fail, we desire to be forgiven and be changed that we would not do that again. That's a desire for goodness. 
Those are desires for goodness. And what is good? Remember what Jesus said to the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. He says, and he was setting out on a journey, speaking of Jesus, and a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now Jesus cuts through the mustard because he knows what's really going on in the guy's heart. And his answer exposes that. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? He says, there is no one good but God alone. The implication is, you don't believe I'm God, so why do you call me good? He's exposing where his heart was at. But the point is, there is no one truly good but God. No one good but God. Indeed, we see that God is characterized by good, his deeds are good, and his redeemed people, because of Christ, are good, and they are saved unto good works that he has prepared. Let me remind you that the only thing that equips you for good works is not going to church, not doing certain things. It's actually God's word. Now, certainly you get that in church, but it's God's word that equips us for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, written word, is inspired by God and profitable, beneficial, leads to advantageous results for, one, teaching, for reproof that exposes where I'm at, for correction that corrects me when I'm exposed, willing to accept the exposition of my heart, in a sense, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for what? Every good work, every one. We had this read earlier in Titus chapter 2 that Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. There's a difference, a change of heart. His good deeds, not not good deeds like denominational deeds you see out there from the world trying to earn points with God and with man, but real goodness. In Ephesians chapter 2, after revealing the fact that by grace we've been saved through faith, and that not out of ourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, he says, for we, chapter 2, verse 10, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them or walk into them in a sense. You see, Paul is praying that God would fulfill every desire they have and we have for goodness. That's really great. That's awesome, and that's God's will. You see, when you desire to do what's right and it's not happening, you hunger and thirst for righteousness and it's not happening, God's good. He desires to fulfill that, and He does it through His Son working in us. Remember Psalm 37, trust in the Lord and what? Do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. This is verse 3. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Every desire for goodness. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him also and He will do it. Amazing. Every desire for goodness. Lord, help me respond the right way. I fail so often. Put a guard over my mouth, Lord. God, help me. That's a desire for goodness. And those desires for goodness come in the context of humility because you've got to admit your failures. Lord, God, help me. May he fulfill every single one. Isn't that great? If you're a true believer, you desire goodness. You desire him to help you be good. Unless you're not saved or you got sin in the way, I tell you, if you don't desire to be good towards your spouse, then there's a problem. If you don't desire to do the right thing to do your work hardly under the Lord, that's good. There's a problem. 
you don't desire to learn how to respond rightly in the midst of difficulties, then that's a problem. But when you know the Lord, we fail, but we have desires for goodness. His goodness. May He fulfill everyone. And that is so encouraging. You're being persecuted. It's difficult. You want to do what's right. Fulfill every desire for goodness. Wonderful. Well, it doesn't stop there. There's more fulfilling here. More fulfilling. He says in the end, he says, and fulfill every desire for goodness and, notice this phrase, the work of faith with power. That's quite a little packed statement, isn't it? The work of faith with power. Well, what does it mean? We saw back in chapter 1, verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians, that their faith was working. The work of faith in these Thessalonians, Paul praised God for their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. He said, hey man, your work of faith. Faith is working in you. And so here we have the idea of work of faith. Work, ergon, and faith, pistos. It's, it speaks of the faith that manifests itself in some type of work, in a sense, or deeds. But what does it mean? You see, genuine faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ will produce something in you. Not demon faith. Demons believe and they shudder. This is faith in a real true Savior believing what he said. Turn to James chapter 2. This is the discourse on faith working in Scripture. Well, there's all over the place, by the way, but this is a more direct one. You see, if we believe in Christ and we believe his word, that's going to manifest in our actions. What you truly believe does manifest in your actions. If you believe he has it all in control, then you don't need to worry. When you're tempted, you realize, you go back to, nope, he's got it in control. It's going to manifest in your actions. James chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? There's the key to interpreting this whole passage. Can someone who says they believe in Jesus but it doesn't manifest in their life? Can that type of faith, this theoretical faith, save that person? Is that a saving faith? Well, he's going to answer the question here. It's about saving faith. He says in verse 14, What use is it, my brother? Man says he has faith, but no worth. Can that faith save him? And then he gives an illustration in the context of love, because love is a manifestation of faith. If a brother or sister is out clothing or in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, this is a very spiritual Jewish statement, Go, be filled. Be in peace. Be filled and warmed. And you do not give them what is necessary for their body? What use is that? That means your faith in Christ isn't manifesting in a heart of compassion towards that person in need, which would work out in helping them. You see, if you truly did trust in Christ and love his people. Verse 17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. It's not really real, basically. It's not there. It's, it's dead. He says, being by itself. If your life isn't changed, then that faith is maybe not a real faith that actually saves. Verse 18, but someone may say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works. I'll show me my faith by my works. See, true faith in Christ Jesus will manifest in obedience to the word of God and the God of the word. Not a faux obedience, but a real heart changed obedience. And he goes one step further to reprove the one who has dead faith. You believe God is one. That's the way the Jews, yes, I believe God is one. Here always where the Lord your God is one. They believe that. Yes, you do well. The demons believe and shudder. They have a faith. They believe they ascend to the facts. Ascending to the facts is not genuine faith. 
But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless, it's empty. You can ascertain to the facts concerning God, you can understand the information about the gospel, whatever it might be. The demons believe that too. But that's not a faith that could save and will manifest in your life. And then he gives some examples. He gives two examples here of the patriarch and a prostitute. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Genesis 22, God said, go, take your son. And he believed by faith. And he believed that God could raise him up from them. He's saying, offer your son. That's whom these promises were going to come through. He had to believe that God would keep his promises even in that. And then, therefore, he thought God could raise him from the dead. And he did it. He said, we will worship and return to you. Was he not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, faith was working with his works. There you go. As a result of his works, faith was perfected or complete. It was manifest as genuine, complete, mature. And the scripture was fulfilled, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see, a man is justified by works, not by faith alone. Now, we know it's by faith alone, but he's saying it's got to be a faith that works. You see? And then we have Rahab the harlot. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, also faith without works is dead. Now, we know we're not saved by works. I just mentioned it before. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But if you believe, your faith should work. It should work. And Paul's going to be praying that it would work powerfully, that every desire for it to work powerfully, Lord, I desire to trust you completely. That's my desire. May that work out powerfully. May you really trust him powerfully. May it work out. You see, believers don't simply hear the word of God. They, by faith, act upon it. They share some passages. James 1.22, but prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Deluded hearers. You hear it, you walk away, your life's not changed because your heart isn't changed. Right? For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has completely forgotten what kind of person he is. You come in, you hear the word of God, you maybe get convicted for a second about yourself, you walk out, you're back to the same way you were after you walked out. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, that means dwells in the law of liberty and abides by it, lets it abide and rest in their heart, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. First John chapter 2, by this we know we have come to know him. If you want to know if you know Jesus, here's the test. If we keep his commands or commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commands is a liar. doesn't mean you don't sin. He said in chapter 1 of First John, hey, you know, we confess our sins, right? If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. But the one who is truly his is going to obey his word. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. There should be a change in your life. Not perfection, not glory, but a change. There should be humility when we sin and humility as we trust in Christ. So then, 
Paul is praying that God would fulfill every desire of these Thessalonians for their faith to work itself out. Isn't that great? You desire that your trust in Christ would manifest in changes in the way you respond to people, in the way you act, in the way you are, in what you do. And then notice he says at the end of it, with power, or literally in power. That's amazing. Powerfully working out. It's God's will for our faith to work out powerfully. That means Him to work out powerfully in us as we trust Him. Think about Galatians chapter 5. You desire to love the body of Christ. May that be fulfilled powerfully. as you, you desire to be kind. May that work out powerfully as you trust Jesus. You desire it. You're not there yet. You desire self-control. May it work out powerfully. You've got to be thinking about his, his things and Him. And don't forget where that power comes from. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, or you could translate it this way. They've got it at italics. It literally could be translated, having had the eyes of your heart enlightened. Since you've been enlightened, the New King James translates it that way, and I believe they're correct. So that you may know, and he says these what's here. What is the hope of your calling? Guess what? The hope of your calling. You would understand it. Wow. His grace will renew thee. 
now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.